Mark 14, 12 through 21. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Thankfully, I will be picking up where Mark left off last week rather than finishing the Olivet Discourse that Jeremiah began a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but he will take that back up, Lord willing, next week. So uh, last week we saw that not only had the chief priests um, been looking to arrest Jesus and have him killed, but we also saw that Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And this stood in stark contrast to Mary, who poured out love and worship upon Jesus in anointing him with a very expensive ointment. And we were reminded that Jesus is not merely to us a means of getting things we want, like health and wealth and happiness in this life. We're instead to love Jesus from a place of worship for who he is. Jesus has reconciled us to God and restored that relationship with him. And that alone is enough, not merely to compel us to live for him, but to pour out our lives in grateful worship. I'm going to switch to a pair of glasses so I can see. Apologies for that. Um, One thing about getting old is you have to have multiple pairs of glasses. So this morning, we will see that God's promises must be taken hold of by faith. And we will also see that he is sovereign in the accomplishment of delivering his people. And one of the most compelling things that we see, both in the Exodus that is celebrated in the Passover, as well as in the redemption that Jesus fulfills in the gospel, is that God saves his people because of his steadfast love for his people. And one of the things that I want us to keep in our sight as we look at this passage is the immediate context of this passage. It's, it's easy for us to look at the passage isolated from what's around it. And I want us to keep in very clear view the immediate context of this passage is the verse just preceding it. And that is that Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends, has freely determined to betray him into the hands of those who seek to kill him. 
In this situation of celebrating the Passover with his disciples, the Lord is sovereignly working his plan of redemption in the midst of betrayal. Now, as we consider his word this morning, um, we're going to need help. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you, uh, God, to be with us. God, as we consider uh, what you have revealed in your word, God, we ask for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. God, applying the word to us. God, helping us to see our great need for you in Christ. Pray this morning that uh, you would do that perfect work. As we look at your word and your spirit works in us, Lord, that you would conform us to the image of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. So now we pick up with Jesus and the disciples in verse 12. But first I would like to deal with um, what is cited by some as an apparent contradiction in the scriptures. See, we believe in the truth and the trustworthiness of the scriptures. We believe that they are God's word, that the Bible, that this Bible is God's word. And we believe that it is true and trustworthy. So when we come across a situation where there appears to be a contradiction, rather than assuming that we were wrong in that belief, or rather than just ignoring it, pretending that it's not there, rather we should do some research and to find out uh, if there is a good explanation for it. So we read here at the beginning of verse 12 uh, that Mark records, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. You see, here in Mark, as well as in Matthew and Luke, the disciples and Jesus are celebrating the Passover on Thursday, the 14th day of Nisan. And Jesus is arrested and crucified the next morning. Well, he's arrested that night and crucified the next morning. But we see in John's gospel that those of the chief priests and scribes intend to eat Passover on the next day. In John chapter 18 and verse 28... This is Friday, the next morning, after Jesus and the disciples have eaten the, uh, the Passover meal the night before. John says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So they didn't want to enter the house of the Gentiles so that they would not be defiled and would be able to eat the Passover that night. See, the, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. This is supposed to be a really quick thing. But it comes down to different schools of how to reckon a day. Now, the Pharisees, the Galileans, and honestly, most of Israel at that time reckoned a day from sunrise to sunrise. But the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, who ran the temple, reckoned a day from sundown to sundown. So when they prepared the sacrifice, when they prepared the, the Passover lamb, on Friday, around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it was still, to them, the 14th day of Nisan. There's no, uh, no contradiction. So, what is this Passover lamb? Now, I'm sure most of us will remember the occasion of the Passover that is being remembered and celebrated in Mark's gospel here in the, the week-long festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. More than a 1,000 years prior, 
to this Passover that is being celebrated. God's people, the Israelites, had been held in captivity for 400 years in Egypt, and they were being severely mistreated. And God heard their cry for deliverance. And God called Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. So Moses told Pharaoh to let God's people go. And of course, we know that Pharaoh refused. Even after many plagues had been sent upon Egypt, Pharaoh still refused. So now the final plague that God is about to send on Egypt was that the firstborn in the whole of the land of Egypt would die around midnight that night. It's important for us to note that every firstborn would die. We read in Exodus chapter 11 and verses 4 and 5. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. But God had provided a means of escape. God had provided a means by which the plague would pass over a house untouched. God told them to sacrifice a spotless, unblemished lamb and to paint its blood on the doorposts and lintel of the house. Now God made four promises to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 6 that he would accomplish for them. Tim Keller points out that in these four promises, or these four promises are represented in the four cups in the Passover meal. These four promises were for rescue from Egypt, for freedom from slavery, for redemption by God's divine power, and for a renewed relationship with God. It's important for us to note that these promises must be taken hold of by faith. It wasn't enough to be a member of the visible community of God. And say that again. It wasn't enough to be a member of the visible household or visible community of God's people. Something we should take very good note of for ourselves. If a family did not, by faith, apply the blood of the lamb to their doorpost that night, the judgment would have fallen on them just as well as the Egyptians. God had provided the means of escape. But if a family did not believe that God had spoken, if a family did not believe that God had spoken, or they didn't believe that the prescribed means of escape were true, then this judgment would fall on them as well as the Egyptians. These promises must be taken hold of by faith. The same is true for us today. God would accomplish these promises by his sovereign power, but the veracity, if the veracity of the word that God had spoken were not believed, then this deliverance would not apply. So now back in the Gospel of Mark, it's the first day of this week-long festival, and the disciples asked Jesus where they should prepare so they can celebrate. Look at the second half of verse 12 and following. His disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Then he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, 
Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. The disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. This should sound very familiar to us. Um, remember in chapter 11, just three chapters ago, which for us is about six, six or seven months, Jesus sent two of his disciples at that point into the village and they would find a colt on which no one had ridden. And they did so. And if someone said to them, what are you doing taking this colt? You should say to them, the master has need of it. And Jesus would then enter the city of Jerusalem riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey, in bold proclamation as its king. Now the disciples ask where they should go to prepare the Passover celebration. So Jesus sends two of them. We know from Luke's gospel that this was Peter and John. And he tells them that they will meet a man carrying a jar of water. Now this is really interesting because at this time, seeing a man carry a jar of water would have been unusual. It was considered at this time in Israel's history to be a woman's job. There are exceptions to that. If the man was a member of the ascetic group known as the Essenes, or if he were a slave. Um, now, the instructions are to follow this man, and wherever he enters is where they are to prepare. They're to go to the master of that house and tell him uh, that the master, uh, that the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? The chief thing that we should notice here is that Jesus is in control of all things in the situation leading up to his death. He's fully aware of what is taking place in the shadows, fully aware that Judas and the chief priests are plotting against him. It's been suggested by some that this strange, secretive way of obtaining a place to celebrate the Passover was a way of keeping the location secret from the betrayer. But Jesus, was, uh, Jesus will not allow those who are opposed to his gospel to get in the way of worship, in this case, the worship in the context of the Passover meal, or to hinder his accomplishment of the work of the gospel, which he will soon bring about. There are many who have tried to show that Jesus was merely a troublemaker, who, whose situation got out of hand and that he found himself arrested and executed by the authorities and that was really all that was taking place. But this is not the case. Jesus had been telling his disciples since chapter 8 that when he arrived at Jerusalem that he would be rejected by the chief priests and scribes and that he would suffer and die and be resurrected the third day. He is in complete control of what is going on. This is not an interruption to God's plan. This is God's plan. So it's no surprise that the disciples found it just as he said. They met a man carrying a jar of water, and they followed him to the house, and they prepared the Passover there. Now, verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating... Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, 
Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus makes a rather unexpected announcement in the middle of the Passover meal. Perhaps because he is the true Lamb of God that is prefigured in the Passover meal. You'll remember that John in his gospel account tells us that when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized, that when John saw him approaching, that he exclaimed, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now as they're eating the Passover meal and reclining at table, Jesus makes this announcement. He says that one of them will betray him. He's very, very specific. He says that one of them, one who is eating with him, will betray him. I want us to feel the weight of what's going on here. These are Jesus' 12 closest friends. The disciples began to be sorrowful and began to question out loud one after another, asking the Lord if they are the ones who will betray him. This is a moment of clarity for the disciples. This is really kind of unusual that the disciples assume that it might be them, that they recognize that they are actually capable of it. Jesus doesn't directly answer who it is. He doesn't say it's Judas here. I can't believe you guys didn't notice. He's been really sneaky lately. But he confirms, he only confirms that it's one of the twelve. One who is close enough in fellowship with him to dip in the same dish as he. Remember the verse that immediately precedes our passage. We already looked at it. That Judas has conspired with the chief priest to betray Jesus to his death. Now we as the reader know that it's Judas. Because Mark told us in verse 11. But until this announcement, we didn't know that Jesus knew. But I don't want us to be deceived into thinking that Jesus is unaware of what is going on. I also want us to see something else as well. Judas is not a stranger to Jesus. He's one of his closest friends. And as Mark Schladorn pointed out last week, Judas had the perfect environment for faith. Judas had witnessed the miracles. He had seen the kind compassion of the Lord in healing the sick. He had witnessed Jesus raise the dead. He had heard Jesus teach. He had been in close fellowship with him for three years. He had been his friend. This is the worst part of the betrayal. He was his friend. Not some zealot who had been watching from a distance. Not a stranger who really didn't understand what was going on. I think it might be easier for us to imagine that. There's some stranger on the outskirts of the crowds who didn't really get what was going on. Now, this is Judas, one of the 12, who intentionally and premeditated, premeditatedly, I knew I was going to have trouble saying that word. It's a tough word. He intentionally and premeditatedly plotted to betray Jesus into the hands of the chief priest in order to kill him. 
I think because most of us have thought so long of Judas as a villain that we forget that he was a close friend. The other disciples didn't know it was Judas. They were asking, is it I? It was already considered one of the worst sorts of betrayal to eat a meal with someone and then to betray them. Eating a meal was an act of of deep fellowship. Kind of wish we could get back to that. No, this, this wasn't even an ordinary meal, was it? This meal was to be eaten as an act of worship. This meal was a meal of celebration and remembering, much like this service. We call this the celebration service, but the longer name for it is a service of celebration and remembering. This meal was a meal of celebrating and remembering the goodness of God in delivering his people. And in that, Judas, in this act of betraying Jesus, the anointed one, Judas commits an act of supreme blasphemy. Now listen, while we see the depth of Judas's betrayal and we see his sin, I want us to, to feel the weight of the warning for us. Remember the lesson of the fig tree in chapter 11, like I said, six or seven months ago. Jesus and the disciples were walking along the road from Bethany to Jerusalem. And Jesus was hungry. And he sees this fig tree in full leaf. This was the sign that the fig tree was a fruit-bearing tree. Now, even if it wasn't the season for figs, if a fig tree was in full leaf, it was an indication that it was a fruit-bearing tree. But it was just leaves. Judas, likewise, to all outward appearances, appeared to be a true disciple of Jesus. But he didn't have true faith, and he didn't bear good fruit. He appeared to be serving God, but was only really concerned with serving himself. How about us? This is a question we should ask ourselves. Is our outward appearance the result of the inward work of the Spirit in our lives? Or is it just leaves? Another thing to notice is that Jesus is fully in control. And what I mean by that is fully in control of himself. I don't want us to make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is stoic and unfeeling. It isn't that Jesus is detached from his emotions. There are very, there are likely very real and painful emotions that Jesus is experiencing in this moment. But he is not rattled. Not only is he about to suffer the wrath of God for our sin, but one of his closest friends is actively betraying him, but he is in control. He is not rattled by this. God's sovereign plan to save his people is Jesus' deepest desire. It's not that he's emotionally detached or or stoic, but he is deeply emotionally engaged in the love of God for his people. Now, another error that I want us to avoid here, and it's been said by some that Judas had no choice. That because his actions were preordained, he was merely doing God's will. 
And so he was not deserving of the judgment that Jesus had just pronounced upon him. And Jesus said in verse 21, he said, the son of man goes as it is written of him. In other words, it's predetermined by God. Written in the scriptures that the Messiah will be betrayed, suffer and die for his people. But woe to him by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would, be, it would have been better if he had not been born. Though it was written, it was predetermined, this betrayal still incurs the wrath of God. The sovereign foreordination of a sinful action does not absolve the sinner who of their own desire intentionally wills and chooses to carry out that action. Let me say that again. That was a mouthful. The sovereign foreordination of a sinful action does not absolve the sinner who of their own desire intentionally wills and chooses to carry out that action. Consider the account of Joseph, the youngest of Israel's sons. His brothers conspired to kill him, but instead they compromised and only sold him into slavery. Many years later, after suffering many things, though, God had placed Joseph in a very high position in Pharaoh's court in order to save the lives of those same brothers and many other people as well. He had this to say when he saw his brothers again many years later. In Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, he says to them, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Consider also Peter's first recorded sermon in Acts chapter 2. Verse 23, Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan, and foreknowledge of God. This was not merely God's plan. It was foreordained. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, but the culpability of the actions that were taken against him land firmly on those who perpetrated the act. Jesus has his sight set on accomplishing the gospel. Jesus, Judas's betrayal was part of that definite plan of God, but Judas is still responsible for his actions. Now, really important question for us to ask is what can we take away from this account? Is it that betraying Jesus is bad? So don't be like Judas, don't betray Jesus. No. It might be good for us to remember that all of the disciples abandoned Jesus that night. All of them abandoned Jesus for their own safety. Even Peter, who followed when they arrested him, denied Jesus, or denied that he knew Jesus. When they recognized him, he said, I don't know him. When they heard his accent, he said, he's a Galilean. He's got to be one of them. I don't know the man. And another person recognized him. He said, and he cursed and said, I don't know him. We betray Jesus in our hearts and actions when we chase after the many idols that we in all practicality worship instead of worshiping the living God with our whole heart. We are fickle people. 
Our hearts are easily captured by the allure of this world. We seek to find joy and happiness in the things of this world. We've got to ask ourselves, why was Jesus so intent on accomplishing the work of the gospel? Love. God's steadfast love for his people. This is the same answer for why the Lord rescued and delivered his people out of Egypt that Jesus and his disciples are celebrating. The steadfast love of God for his people. We were just talking about this in community group last week. And Joyce and I have been visiting the Mount in Rockledge recently. And, and we spent some time talking about one of my favorite passages. Ephesians chapter 2. And it's uh, the, the passage that was being discussed from the book Gentle and Lowly. Ephesians chapter 2. Um, verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Why would Jesus endure the betrayal of a friend and suffer the wrath of God for our sins? Why would he do this to save a people who are so fickle in our affections, who continue to chase after worthless idols? Because of his great love for us. I hope that strikes you as, as kind of hard to wrap your heart around. We're not capable of that kind of love not without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When someone betrays us, we want to lash out. We don't immediately think to forgive. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead. God loves us even when we chase after the things that we know. We know they're worthless, and we still chase after them. Even when we're trying to find significance in our jobs of all places. Or in how much money we make. Or the accumulation of things. Or in having an ideal family. We make idols of many of the good gifts that he gives us. As Mark already uh, mentioned in the prayer of confession. He loves us. If you're not a believer here this morning, I want to ask you to consider this God who is rich in mercy and turn from whatever it is you might be chasing and turn to this great love of God in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer, what is the call but to do the same, to daily turn from whatever it is that we're chasing and turn again to the great love of God in Christ Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, as we consider your love for, for broken sinners, God,
God, we ask you to, one, help us to see our need for you. Help us to see how great your love is for your people. That in the face of a deep betrayal, God, that you love us. God, we pray as we walk through the the coming week, God, that you would remind us again and again of what you endured to save us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.